My name is Jeff. It's nice to meet you. No, it's good to be back. Uh, just after our family being gone for a little bit, just getting away. Uh, the truth is, some of you haven't been here either. You didn't even know I was gone, right? I know, I know. Um, unfortunately, I returned to you this morning uh, with some mixed emotion. And uh, there is absolutely no good time to do this, and so I'm going to do it now. For almost um, close to 20 years, Janelle Dahl has led Heart of Life uh, in terms of children's ministry. And I've had the privilege of watching that happen at least for 17 of those years. When I came here, she was attempting to, to do that completely volunteer. And I've watched her grow with that ministry into now what is more than a full-time responsibility. Well, Janelle believes that it's time for her to step away from that role. Um, she has been here for a long time, and it is her desire to be able to, to spend more time with her family. And so, despite what I think, she believes that it's time um, for her to step away. The really cool thing about what God has done through her is that she has done this so long here that literally she has had the privilege of watching children that she had an opportunity to direct toward what it means to follow Jesus with all their heart, now stand alongside her in ministering to next generations of what it means to follow Jesus with all their heart. And I'm saying that is extraordinary and that is to be celebrated greatly. Now, on an immediate note, um, she is still going to lead our kids to camp in Bolivar, all right? So all the kids just went, whew, all right, because Miss Janelle's still going to be there. She wants to do that, and I'm so glad that she is, and so she's going to be a part of, uh, actually, she's still going to be the lead in, in, in taking you to camp. But this week will be her last official week as Heart of Life Children's Minister. And so certainly, um, we want to give Heart of Life the opportunity to express our appreciation. So the plan is this coming Saturday, all right, this coming Saturday, the 17th, from 1 to 3 at the vault. Now, we didn't do it next Sunday because a whole bunch of our students are boarding buses next Sunday headed to student camp and a ton of those students actually grew up within children's ministry. We didn't want them to miss that either. And so this Saturday, the 17th, at the vault from 1 to 3, you don't have to come. This is not like you show up for two hours. This is drop by any time from 1 to 3 and just a chance for us as a church to personally say to her, thank you. Thank you. For me, to say that Janelle will be missed um, would be the understatement of the year. I have never spent one single day 
as the pastor of Heart of Life and not been able to trust what's going on with our kids because she has always been trustworthy with that. Plus all the stuff that she does outside of just kids ministry and all that impacts us as a church, the question is, <laughs> what do we do now? And here's what we're going to do now. We're going to depend on the God who is way ahead of us on all this. That's what we're going to do. We're going to depend on the God who long before we did knew that this day would be here, the God who knows the best for Janelle and the God who knows the best for HOL. That's what we're going to do. So if it's okay with you, I want to start that right now. And let's just pray. Let's pray about where we find ourselves and just asking for God to help us as we walk through it. All right? Let's pray. God, I, I thank you that um, you understand in such a moment there is um, a sadness that is a part of this. And God, that's because you've blessed us like crazy and this is about more than somebody filling a job. Um, this is about somebody that we've just grown to love like crazy. And God, a part of that is because she has grown to love us like crazy. And she's just loved on our kids um, the way you would do it. And so I thank you that you understand the part of our heart where certainly we're grateful, but there's just that part of, of the change and the part of sadness. God, today we're leaning into you, truly believing that you are ahead of us on this and that you really do have next steps for her. You've got next steps for us. God, we're asking you to give us the ability to hear your voice on those things. God, would you give us the ability to recognize your leading in those things? You are good always. And that means that even in this moment, we can look forward with some crazy expectation of the beautiful things that you're going to do. So God, thank you for 20 years of just incredible love and service. Thank you for Janelle. Thank you for allowing us together to be able to declare your greatness in some cultures that we just never even dreamed you'd give us the chance to be a part of. God, thank you for young lives whose hearts are fully surrendered to you. Thank you for friendship. I thank you for Janella's family. Would you bless her and would you bless Heart of Life? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Today, I want to return to Acts. So thank goodness we can go to our Bibles in this moment and not just have to walk out of here because I didn't want to do that to you today. And so I want you to grab your Bible and head back to the book of Acts. Um, we have been in a talk series. We took a break for a little bit called Put Me In Coach. And this is why we called it that. It's because when we read Acts, we discover that belonging in God's family is not to sit and soak. To belong in God's family is to step onto the field. It's following Jesus. It's moving forward. It's being on mission. Fifty days 
after the resurrection, which by the way, if you want to mark that this year, some of you can barely remember Easter, all right? Last Sunday would have been Pentecost Sunday this year, if that makes sense. That's how much time, 50 days after the resurrection, the Holy Spirit falls on the apostles, giving them power and purpose and a plan, and the church was born. And despite threats from the outside and despite threats from the inside, she grew like crazy. Now, that's what happens when you get the order of attention right. When the order of attention is the mission that Jesus calls us to first, and then we put other people before ourselves, when you start operating that way, unity and growth flourish and the church multiplies. That's what's happening. Here's where we left off, Acts chapter 6, verse 7. Look at what it says. So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Verse 8 then says, now, who? Stephen. Now, Stephen. Now, those two words connect some dots for us, all right? This is, this is not Dr. Luke who's writing the book of Acts suddenly going, hey, this would be a good place to tell Stephen's story. No, now Stephen means that this is connected to what's been going on. What's the mission that Jesus gave? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. So far, we've been in Jerusalem. That's what the story's been about. Stephen's story becomes the pivot point that moves the mission to the rest of the world. Listen to me. You know about Jesus because Stephen's story was the pivot point that, that sent it your way. Here's what it says. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, shocker, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Sicilia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Here's what I want you to grasp. Stephen was a powerful leader for God. Remember, he was chosen to be one of the seven. Well, what were they looking for in the seven? They were looking for men who were full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. He had it. It says in that text that he was full of faith. And here it says that he is full of God's grace and power and wisdom. Here is a guy with such powerful Jesus' life that those who oppose Jesus don't know what to do with Stephen. They can't shut him up. So here's what happens, verse 11. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and put him before the Sanhedrin. 
They produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, that sounds really familiar to you. Because it sounds almost exactly like what happened to Jesus. They can't actually pin anything on him, so they got to what? Make it up. They can't pin anything on him, so they got to come up with some false witnesses. They charge him with blasphemy. Blasphemy just, just speaking against the things of God, reproach against God. And so they say, Stephen, is, he's speaking against God, he's speaking against Moses, he's speaking against the law, and he's speaking against the temple. Now, in Israel, there are no bigger pillars of importance. God, Moses, the law, and the temple. There's nothing bigger. That is the foundation of their story. This is the stuff they stand on. So here's what it says, verse 15. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, again, if you're a student of the Bible, that's happened before. Moses, when he's on the mountain, right, and his face glows in the presence of God. Jesus, on the mountain with those few disciples, the transfiguration, those guys were on the mountain. Stephen's in the valley. You turn the chapter, chapter 7, verse 1, and here's what it says. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? Now, here's what I want us to start. This is not Stephen at a little local court. This would be like the supreme court of the nation. We got the high priest and the Sanhedrin. That's the, that's the supreme court for the nation. Now, I like courtroom drama. Anybody like courtroom drama? I don't like my own courtroom drama. I like watching other courtroom drama, right? You, you agree? So I, I can remember when, and when I was a kid, and this is going to be, some of y'all are going to look at me like, and I first got a TV in my room. All right, now granted this was a couple of years ago, all right, but when I first as a kid got a TV in my room, it was a box about this big, and it only showed black and white, all right, some of you are like, really, really? And it would only pick up a few channels off the antenna, and the thing that I could watch like at night before I went to sleep was reruns of Perry Mason. Anybody ever seen Perry Mason? All the old people in the room, we see Barry, Barry Mason, all right? I, but he, he, I love just courtroom drama. I, I, I love it. Well, this is one of the most significant courtroom scenes in the history of the world. Because of the significance it has, on the mission of Jesus being known to the whole world. Stephen takes the opportunity. He's being charged. And he takes the opportunity to use 
their story, which are also the things that he's being accused of. Speaking against God, speaking against Moses, speaking against the law, and speaking against the temple. And he shows how they have gotten it wrong because of what they've missed. He, he, you can read it this week. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, so go home, read. It's about verse 2 all the way through verse 50, and he turns it into a sermon. He's in the courtroom, and he goes back into Israel's history, and he starts talking about Abraham, and then he'll talk about Joseph, and then he gets to Moses, and he gets to the law, and he gets to the temple, and basically this is Stephen's defense. Because I understand Jesus, then I understand your story better than you do. That's his defense. Because I understand who Jesus is, then I understand your story better than you do. You want to charge me against Moses, but here's what I know. Moses was pointing us to Jesus. Verse 37, if you want to read it this week. He says, you, you want to talk about the law? Here's what I know. The law was fulfilled in who? Jesus. Verse 38 and verse 53, if you want to look it up this week. He says, you want to talk about the temple? Let me tell you what's happened now that Jesus has come. He died. He arose. We are now the temple of God. Verse 48. He says, you are actually the blasphemous ones because you have rejected Jesus. Now, here's the big point for us today. And I love it when, when it works where there's like one big point. And this, this week it does. Here's the big point. Whatever story you are living, it is incomplete if Jesus is not the center of it. Whatever story you are living, it is incomplete if Jesus is not the center of it. It doesn't matter if your story is religious or irreligious. Are these people living a religious story? Absolutely. Their story is God-saturated. It's got its stories filled with stuff about Moses and filled with the law and filled about the temple. Their story is absolutely religious. There's God's stuff all in it, but they missed Jesus. They rejected him. And I'm saying this is what our lives ought to be about all the time. Is Jesus the center of your story? That's the question. Is Jesus the center of your story? I mean, what story are you really living for? Because that's the story that shapes your life. That's the story that shapes your identity. That's the story that shapes your pursuits. I recently read a little article about um, Jimmy Fallon, who is just crazy, hilarious. Um, talented is like an understatement of just crazy talented. But I want you to listen to this statement. Here's, this is something he said. 
He said, I remember saying to myself, if I don't make it on Saturday Night Live before I'm 25 years old, I'm going to kill myself. It's crazy. I had no other plan. I didn't have friends. I didn't have a girlfriend. I didn't have anything going on. I had my career, and that was it. That's his story. That's what he's living for. There's an American story that we all live in the middle of. The American story goes like this. You are entitled to life, liberty, and above all else, personal happiness. That's the story we live in. And I'm saying to you this morning, every individual, every organization, every culture is living out of a story, a particular vision of what is most important to us. It's what drives us, it's what compels us, it's what shapes us, it's what controls us, and whatever that is, is what we live for and what we die for. And you say, well, how, how do I really know what my story is? Well, I could probably in a few minutes just ask you a, a little series of questions like, you know, like, what do you most want people to know about you? Like, when you meet people, what do you most want them to know? That's probably what your story actually is. When you're alone, what is it that you think about the most? That's probably your story. What is it that you worry about the most? That's probably your story. And what we're reading in Acts chapter 6 and 7 is that Stephen lived for one story. The story worth living and dying for, his name is Jesus. And unless he's at the center of the story, it's incomplete. It leaves us empty. And so I'm asking you some really practical questions. Come on, stay-at-home moms. Is Jesus the center of the story in your daily routine. You guys got a crazy job. Staying home mom's got a crazy job. But you got to ask the question, is Jesus the center of the story in your daily routine? And then I'm saying from entrepreneurs to athletes to accountants to artists, is Jesus the center of your story? To the single people. What does it look like for Jesus to dominate the storyline of your singleness? That's what the Bible calls you to. I'm going to ask that again. What does it look like for Jesus to dominate the storyline of your singleness? If you're a student, what does it look like to be so Jesus-centered that your teachers, your professors, your peers don't know what to do with you because they don't agree with you, but... They don't know what to do with you. To you empty nesters, what does Jesus have to say about your finally quiet house? What does he say? Retirees, what does it look like for Jesus to be the center of your retirement plan? Not just to ask him for one, 
but for him to be the center of it. Is Jesus the center of your story? If not, then your story, no matter how religious, is incomplete. Last couple of weeks, um, my family and I had uh, got the chance to spend a little time around the ocean, um, which is something that we try um, as often as we can. And I mostly try to do that because they, they love the ocean and I do too. Um, I'm not joking with you to say I love walking everywhere with my wife but I really love walking on the beach with my wife. I do. Um, I love crashing the waves with my kids. And we are always in our ocean going, looking for shells. Uh, we make it quite the contest, looking for shells. Doesn't it sound exciting? So exciting, I thought that I would show you some. Can I? What do you think about that one? Uh-huh. Isn't that nice? Isn't that nice? I actually found it. Yep, we got some, some conch shells, a whole, whole deal. No animals inside. That's the rule. No, no animals. No animals. Get, 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 stay. Got the long, long, I don't even know what these things are called. I just know that they're really cool looking. How about that one? That was pretty good. Pretty good size for a shell. Pretty good size for a shell. Um... Let's see. Here's like your, your normal, when you think of a shell, I think a shell, it's got the, got the shape to it, right? Kind of cool, kind of cool. How about these babies? Look at there. Look at there. Look at there. I almost can't hold that one up. I mean, that's, 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 that's pretty serious on the, on the shell collection. And then, oh, one more. Got, got that one. It's a different shape. But I also brought my prize find this time. You ready? Check that baby out. Ooh, yeah, yeah. I thought that might be the way you would react. I mean, that's... <laughs> he, he's not in there, but <laughs> something was. Um, that's pretty cool, right? All right. Here's what I want to tell you. Um, a part of what makes that such a powerful time each year for my family is that for me there is a restfulness of just, you know, getting away and being with them. There is a rhythm that's God designed those whole waves and that whole deal is pretty cool. There's sunshine, which helps. Just the whole God power and creativity part of it. But I'm also telling you that what makes it so powerful for me personally is that it always reminds me of what my life is to be about. And it always enables me to return to you reminded of what my life is to be about. And that got shaped for me about 17 years ago, not too long after um, I actually became your pastor. I heard this story that I and thousands of people I think like me have not been able to shake. Um, I'm convinced that when history continues to move, it may be one of the most um, impactful stories of my generation. 
It actually was told on May, in May of 2000, on a grassy field on Shelby Farms in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, 40,000 college students actually gathered on that day. And an older gentleman um, by the name of John Piper said something. And this is a little bit of what he said. He said, you don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world. You don't have to be smart or good looking or from a good family. You just have to know a few basic, glorious, majestic, obvious, unchanging, eternal things and be gripped by them and willing to lay down your life for them. And then he told a story. It was a story of two ladies in his church that he pastored that had just died. One of them, her name was Ruby. Ruby was over 80 years old, had been single her whole life. She was a nurse. And she poured her life out for one thing, one story. It was to make Jesus Christ known among the sick and the poor in the hardest and most unreached places. That was Ruby's life. Then there was Laura. Laura was a medical doctor. And in her retirement, because she also was pushing 80, she had joined up with Ruby, and they were going village to village in Cameroon, going to the sick and the poor and to the most difficult places to share the truth about Jesus. When the brakes give way, over the cliff they go, and they are dead immediately. And John Piper asked this question, is that a tragedy? And then he told a second story. The second story went like this. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. And John Piper said, that is a tragedy. He said there are people in this country spending billions of dollars to get you to buy that story. And on that day, he said, I'm pleading with all of my heart, don't buy that dream. As the last chapter before you stand, before the creator of the universe, to give an account for what you did with the life he gave you, here it is, Lord, my shell collection. and my boat. I'm telling you that when I visit the beach now, I enjoy it. I do like crazy because I love being with my family and I love being able to rest and I love the sunshine and I love checking out things like shells that God created. I love that stuff. 
But every time I go there now, I'm reminded I am not going to make my life about collecting shells. I'm not going to do it. I don't want to stand before my maker and all I have to show is a shell collection or a boat or a trophy or a bank account or anything else that will not carry over to the next life because I'm telling you the next one's going to last a whole lot longer than this one. I want to leverage my life to see the mission that Jesus gave the church a long time ago. I want to see it fulfilled. I want to be like those 80-year-old ladies. I want my life to matter for making Jesus known. I want that to happen where I live, and I want to be willing to go to the hardest and the most unreached places. I want to risk what is not eternal, which is stuff like money, by the way. I want to risk what is not eternal for the sake of that which is eternal, lives changed by the love of Jesus. My family's going through financial peace, but we're not going through financial peace so that we can collect shells in retirement. We're going through financial peace because we want to learn better and better how to leverage everything we've got for the eternal. John Piper is right Billions of dollars are spent trying to get you to buy the comfort story. That's why we need each other to constantly ask, is Jesus really the center of your story? Let me speak for just a second to those of you who may be here today. And you are still taking in the evidence of who Jesus is. You haven't yet fully committed to, to follow him, but you're listening. And here's what I want to tell you. You, we, were all made to look to a story for meaning, for rescue, for love. But that story is not a story with you at the center. Some of you are here today because you're looking for a different story, and the reason is because the story you've been after, it ain't working. It's not working. It leaves you restless. It leaves you empty. Some of you have actually attained much of what you thought your story should be, and it still leaves you dissatisfied. Here's what I'm promising you today. No other lords love you like Jesus. None of them. Nothing else that you pursue will love you like him. Everything else will leave you empty. Everything else you will have to continually prop it up. That doesn't sound like a good God to me. Here's where Stephen takes them. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. That's Jesus. And now you've betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. He's like, you missed it. You've missed it. 
you got a crazy religious story, but you miss Jesus. And so there's implicit in this, this call for them to turn back to God. In the Bible, it's called repentance. It means to turn back to him. Stephen's not being harsh. He's being loving. And then it says in verse 54, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen sees Jesus at the throne, which, by the way, read the story, is exactly what Jesus said he would be in his own trial. In Jesus' own trial, he said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to the right hand of the Father. And Stephen gets evidence. It, it's like God is just evaluating or, or, or validating the fact Jesus really is the one story worth living for. And as Stephen is being misjudged, he sees the judge of the universe who's missing nothing. Now, come on. That's got to be encouraging for some of you here today. That maybe it's not persecution for you, but maybe it's your circumstances today that feel so out of control. What does it mean? that with the eyes of your heart, you can know there is a judge on the throne who not only sees it all, but he has not left you alone. And one day, maybe you won't be in this life, but one day he will make all things right. Verse 57, at this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. We'll see him again. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, die. This was not one of those moments in the Bible where it was an organized stoning. And I know that sounds crazy to even think that that could exist, but it did. This is a mob reaction. But even in the reaction, Stephen prays, and who does he sound like? He sounds just like Jesus. Stephen becomes the first martyr of the church. He's the first person that we know of that loses their life because he will not back down from the fact that he loves Jesus with all of his life, and that's the story he lives for. Here's what I want you to understand today. Stephen is not what I'm going to call the, the Forrest Gump of the Bible. In other words, Stephen is not this guy that nobody knows about, and then all of a sudden something really wild happens to him, like he's martyred and he becomes famous. No. Do you remember who Stephen was from the very beginning? 
a man full of God's spirit and wisdom and power and grace. I'm telling you, Stephen was a man who lived so powerfully in Jesus that they did not know what to do with him. They couldn't stop him. By the way, we're still telling his story. Here's what church people know. When we get to Stephen's story in the book of Acts, it is often met with this kind of question. You ready? You knew this was coming at some point. How do you respond to the possibility of dying because you're a follower of Jesus? Right? That's always the question. We get to Stephen's story, and he loses his life because he's a Jesus follower. And we go, well, how would you respond? How do you respond to the possibility of dying because you were a Jesus follower? And I think there's a true answer for most of us in the room. It's my true answer, and, and I think most of you might would be willing to tag along. Here, here's my true answer. I don't think that much about it. It's like, what do you think about dying? For, for no one, I, I actually don't think that much about it. And a lot of that has to do because of where we live. And when I do think about it, it's so theoretical that I don't even know if I can really answer that question honestly. And come on, if we're really being honest, I think that's where a whole lot of us would be. But here's what I'm calling you to today. I'm not saying you should feel guilty for that. You should feel really blessed and grateful and thank God every day that you live in a culture where you're not afraid of dying every single day. It's not on the forefront of your mind because you love Jesus. But maybe there's a better question for us. Instead of are you willing to die for Jesus... Maybe the question is, are you willing to live for him? Where he moves from just a figure in your pocket that you take out when you need something to a place where he becomes the center of your story. Then the world will not know what to do with you. God, there are probably some folks in the room today who feel like they're in the middle of a battle um, because of their faith. God, there really may be some circumstances here today that folks within their families, where they work, where they go to school, God, they find themselves in some tension places because they so want to follow you the right way. And there's pushback. And God, whatever that looks like, whether that's words, actions, God, I'm asking you to give them, God, a heart that can see a throne with a king who sits on it, who absolutely has not lost control of where they are, got a king who knows and loves, and one day he really will make all things right, and that it is worth continuing to stand, even in the struggle, to stand in the one story that's worth living and dying for. And then, God, I'm praying for some folks who may be here today that for the very first time, they need to entrust their life to you. 
God, there have been, there's some folks that, that maybe they've, they've been pursuing story after story, but, but Jesus has never been at the center of it. And I'm asking today that you would give them a heart that can see a cross, a Savior who loves like nobody has ever loved. God, today, would you give them faith to run to you? Would you give them faith to lay the stuff down and to trust? And then, God, I pray. I pray for some folks today who have some really religious stories. But Jesus is not the center. God, their story is of church attendance it's of being a good person. It's of saying their prayers. But, but Jesus hasn't been at the center. And God, no matter where they are in their life, single, married, got students, retirees, dear God, give us eyes that can see there is just one story. Will you take our heart? And Holy Spirit, you do today what needs to be done in us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you. In the name of Jesus. Amen. If you'd stand with me, we're going to sing.